Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 megahertz on the FM, that's the station. Um, my name is Andy and I will be with you for the next hour. Um, I'm coming to you this week from Wajaknunga country, Fremantle on the west coast of Australia, but of course as ever broadcasting to the lands of the Jagger and Turrbal people in Brisbane and beyond uh, on the internet. Um, this week on the show I'm going to, as we usually do, uh, talk about politics and trying to make a difference in the world and some of you may have heard that there is an event on tomorrow it's the federal election of Australia, and uh, it has all kinds of ramifications. It is important, and I hope you carefully consider who you are going to vote for. But I know I personally find elections extremely depressing. Um, for one, because uh, all other news and happenings seem to get sidelined uh, to hear about some of the worst people our society has to offer women to follow their goings-on. Um, all the people who want to claim power to rule over other people are the last people who should have it. Um, but beyond that, um, I also think it's just so such a shame that for a while, you know, we're pushed about what who are we going to vote for and that this is our input into civil society and politics is who we vote for once every three years when an election comes up. And it's just so depressing. Imagine if this was the only contribution to society that you could make. Once every three years, voting for whichever person is the least worst option on uh, a ballot list. Um, it would just be, the world would be in a worse state than it is now, I'll tell you that. Um, so I'm very grateful that there's lots of people who don't limit their political involvement to election days when they come up and instead are out there uh, every day in every way that they can fighting to make the world a better place and so that is what I want to focus on today on the paradigm shift uh, and we're going to focus on one specific method of creating change uh, in uh, extra electoral means we might say and that is non-violent direct action people who have gone out there broken laws they consider to be unjust put their body in the way of uh, processes that they consider to be unethical. And these are just ordinary people who have uh, looked at the situation and decided that what they can do is um, 
stand where their beliefs are and refuse to move. And a lot of these people have done it as part of the movement against Adani, um, the mega coal mine in central Queensland. I spent a lot of time up there, uh, the direct action camp, Camp Binby. And uh, recently, we were, a few of us were up there and I thought I'd get the microphone out and interview people, uh, not political experts or anything like that, ordinary people who believed in making a difference. And so what you're going to hear today on the show are a few interviews about what it's like to get arrested for what you believe in, um, what the impact of that was personally, what they think is the political value of it, and some of the different stories, some of the fun and adventures that you can have. So stick around. Um, that's what's coming up, a full hour of political empowerment. And we might start off with an interview I did with Emmy Romit-Smith. Um, let's hear what Emmy has to say. I'm Emmy. I use they, them pronouns. We are talking about civil disobedience, and you have done civil disobedience actions for the environment. Do you want to tell us about the first time you got arrested? What happened? Uh, so the first time I got arrested, it was pretty, um, I guess, spur of the moment. It wasn't something I'd been thinking about for ages. Um, I was down in Tasmania, and kind of working in a campaign to stop logging in the Tarkine that the Bob Brown Foundation was running at the time. And I just got a call that there was going to be an action the next morning in a different part of the Tarkine because I was staying at the blockade camp. So me and a friend just fanged it down in the car and we arrived in the middle of a meeting and the question had just been asked of, are there any people who are able to get arrested? And no one put up their hand. And I hadn't been arrested before, but... When I was living at Binby, I was prepared to get arrested, but then the situations changed and that action wasn't um, viable anymore. And so I'd already kind of done the pre-thinking of, can I do this? Is this safe for me? Um, will it have any repercussions? Um, popped up my hand and then we did a lock-on action, um, me and another friend, on some yeah, logging machinery um, in this beautiful, beautiful part of the Tarkine. We stayed there for about nine hours, stopping all work, until the cut crew came and cut us off. So that was your arms in a steel lock-on pipe around a machine? Yeah, yeah, using an elbow lock. So you said it was spur of the moment, but um, obviously you'd found yourself in that situation somehow or other. What, were there things in your life, like influences, that had led you to think that a civil disobedience kind of action was a, a useful way to live your life? I was still pretty new to civil disobedience and direct action. Um, it was only earlier that year old that I realized NVDA existed. Um, but as soon as I was exposed to the community and just the ideas of, you know, taking power into your own hands and knowing that your individual arrest isn't going to win a campaign necessarily, but that you know, arrests are a tool that people can use in order to you know, cause greater disruption and um, cause you know, generally greater media engagement, as well as you know, kind of being able to physically hold power in your own hands. And that was really appealing and still is really appealing to me. Um, and yeah, so my first experience getting arrested, it was fine. Um, the cops were actually pretty decent. Um, they tried their general kind of threatening tactics, but otherwise, you know, 
I'll give them credit, I don't like police, but they weren't the worst. Um, and after that, kind of being in the situation of holding that power and taking that action and being able to physically see something you've stopped, it's a pretty good feeling. Um, I know, it's just such a staunch, like strong community thing and a really strong tactic if it's kind of used in an effective strategy. And yeah, I'm a big fan and I feel like getting arrested only um, helped me understand that process more. You mentioned the community. How important was that in this whole process for you, I guess, of going from somebody who has concerns about the environment to somebody who is, you know, personally locking yourself to machinery and I guess taking away the liberty of a law-abiding, you know, social contract-abiding citizen. Um, what role did the community play in help in that transition? Uh, in my opinion, the community is what makes this. It makes all the difference. I think if there was no community, we wouldn't have maybe not any direct action, but I think we wouldn't have effective direct action because, you know, to go even just an arrestable action in of itself, it relies on so many more people than just the person getting arrested. And so even practically, it's kind of impossible if you're not working with people that you trust at least enough to, you know, stay with you in the forest, talk to police. Um, And then also all the support roles afterwards, you know. I had a pretty chill arrest, but a lot of the situation around that was quite difficult. And having a strong community of people who, some of them I just met, but I still was able to build trust quite quickly, um, it makes all the difference. And I think it means a, a good community is a thing that means you can stay in the movement as well, because direct action can be really scary, it can be really traumatic, but if we are able to support each other and be there for each other, that means we can keep on doing what we do and keep on growing and getting better and getting more effective. You were quite young at the time. Were you worried about, you know, what repercussions this would have for your future? Not particularly, to be honest. Um, You know, in terms of legal repercussions, I feel like the main thing that that affects is getting a corporate job or getting a government job or something like that. And personally, I don't want to base my life around a job. I'd rather get enough to survive and then be able to do activism, do projects that I care about. So... I wasn't super fussed, and I think another reason that I wasn't fussed was, like, I'm young. Um, at the time, I was very, very femme-presenting, um, white, and know that, you know, if everything goes to hell because of arrests, I have, like, a support network of friends around me to support me. So I think not being worried about repercussions was also really linked to, like, all of the privileges that I hold. You're also an artist, and um, art has many forms, and I, I think that nonviolent direct action generally is not just about disrupting machinery it's a piece of theatre in a way do you think that your vocation as an artist that leads in some way to thinking about NVDA in different ways yeah I think that's a really good question because NVDA can yeah it, it is very impactful if it's not necessarily like really artistically beautiful at the time but I think it's fun going into these spaces where everything can be seen as like really staunchly practical um, and being able to appreciate kind of the artistic side of things and try to bring that in of like, oh, you know, look at those monopole lines. They're like really beautiful and kind of then being able to translate that into artistic means, which I think can mean you can show it to more people who see the world in different ways. And you're like, oh, DA can seem really scary, but like here's all the beauty around it. yeah, I think it's a nice way of communicating and also, yeah, there's so much drama. You can really interpret any action through an artistic lens 
pretty well. That's actually what I did um, one of my final uni assignments on was lock-on pipes and like their, how they're created, their artistic role in the world. Um, might have been a bit of a stretch, but it was pretty fun to do. <laughs> no, no, I think um, NVDA is an artwork. Like I said, it's theatre, but also, you know, the the job of creating a better world is a creative process, you know, and we it's a shame to limit art to just things that hang on gallery walls when really we're all called to create our world and um and also it's a shame to think that creating world is that working for change is just this functional like step-by-step thing yeah because i mean we have no idea what a sustainable you know post-capitalism world looks like and if we have so many different creative minds all coming together think of how we can get there and what that looks like i think that only means we're going to have both a better result but also a better path there because we're going to try so many new things. And, uh, yeah, I think if you see activism and change-making as kind of a set list of things to tick off, you're just kind of limiting yourself. It's going to be a lot more fun and a lot more effective if we get creative. Mm. All right, well, um, how do you think this kind of breaking the law, civil disobedience actions, is it something that you still think is important and still think you want to be involved in? Yeah, absolutely. I still think it's really important. And I think the kind of campaigns that I'm interested in has shifted a little bit. But I think just any um, resistance for the sake of resistance is incredibly important. And I think resistance outside of the law and outside of what, you know, kind of society sees as the effective way to go of like petitions and stuff like that. yeah, I think it's absolutely vital. I think we just need to keep growing, keep learning, keep diversifying our tactics, um, keep trying new shit, keep challenging you know, Australia's so-called government, and I think DA is a really important piece of that. All right. Thanks, Amy. On the Paradigm Shift, we are talking about nonviolent direct action, civil disobedience, Um, getting arrested for what you believe in and putting your body in the way of the legal system when it supports immoral activities. I was speaking with Imi about her experiences getting arrested and we're going to carry on. I'm going to go now to a conversation I had with Corrine Vicious about the same thing. Let's have a listen to Corrine. My name is Corrine and I live in Cairns. And we're talking about civil disobedience actions, getting arrested for your beliefs. And you did get arrested last year. Um, what led you to making that decision? Um, it was a progression about first getting aware of what was happening, the shock of that, the grief of, of learning about the lack of future or the, threat, the threatened future for my children and uh, wanting to do something about it and feeling very frustrated that whatever we were doing um, wasn't changing anything, like the acceptable ways of writing to your representative, signing petitions, all that was just very useless. So um, I came to Kambimbi a couple of times and was very inspired by the people here and the learning of nonviolent direct action and how that can help at least make a statement but also personally is feeling like I need to do something and so that's what I could do. It's a nonviolent direct direct action. 
so then on Adani's rail corridor, you um, sat down, blocked the vehicle access. Do you want to talk us through what it was like? Um, it was a unique experience for me. It was the first time that I was going to do something that uh, could get me arrested and did get me arrested. Um, it's obviously always quite symbolic, but the addition, like the accumulation of different actions over time has really made an impact. So I felt part of, you know, a little action, part of a bigger movement. Um, so it was quite uh, surrealistic in some ways because we, you know, had to get up really early and a long drive. And so there's a really calm atmosphere um, and we arrived still uh, on dawn. A, f a couple of colleagues or companions were quite courageous in standing in front of the machine, the machines, the trucks that were coming. And I just picked up my chair and whatever um, banners I had and just walked on the causeway, put my chair down, uh, attached some banners and then sat down and and I was away from everyone else, like, uh, I don't know, 50 meters or more. And um, it was really, really calm. Like everyone was away from me and they were was observing the birds and yeah, it was very um, interesting experience. It can be quite a interesting personal experience, like mm. so that kind of reflective space, you know, we're so often taught to obey the rules and to be afraid of unknown things, what might happen. Like you said, it was quiet and calm for you. Was there much going through your mind? Yeah, actually had I had a phone with me and I recorded myself, like I talked to myself and I sang a bit to myself and I never shared that with anyone, just uh, reflecting on what I was doing there and the... Although I was really calm, I was always also um, not surprised at myself. But yeah, this is a totally unusual situation for me. So, but also feeling I was doing the right thing. So yeah, I had a bit of a of a exchange with myself, and but enjoying the moment as well because it's not going to happen very often. I, I, often it's a thing, I guess, that we think of young people doing these kind of protests, um, young feral people, whereas you um, came into it a bit older. Yeah. Much older. <laughs> what was it like as an older person yeah. doing this kind of action? So I'm 63, well I was 63 at the time and I'm a public servant and I've had a re I'm a middle class white woman. Um, I think I was quite um, aware of my privilege of the risk I was taking was very minimal, was just a fine. I knew as a first offender type thing, it wouldn't cost me much uh, in terms of um, emotional damage or whatever. But so I, I came with that understanding. So I was quite confident. Uh, I think uh, as my generation has obviously all the responsibility in creating the problem. And I feel that uh, my generation has the responsibility to avert the worst. I have two young ad adult children who live with a lot of anxiety. Um, um, I encourage them to 
question all the pressures that they have, but they have their lives. And um, so I was ready to make a bit of a stand for them as well, that it's okay to challenge authority and uh, question what's happening around them, not taking it as the, the natural way. It's There's reasons behind what's happening around them and they need to understand it. And um, yeah, I was empowering myself and trying to empower my children and yeah. What did your children think about mum getting arrested? Oh, I think they thought it was rather cool. <laughs> um, the way I presented as well, obviously, it's not just about the getting arrested, it's the reason behind it and what we're trying to achieve. And um, so I think they understand that and respect that. Yeah. Do you think that that kind of civil disobedience action, direct action, stopping work, is a, a useful tool in fighting the climate crisis? Um, I do think it is in terms of, like I'm inspired by people who have done direct action. Uh, it's essential for me that it's nonviolent. And so if I'm inspired by people who do it, then um, I think it's, that's useful in itself. Uh, to grow the the movement, it's about numbers, and th not everybody's going to do the the direct action, but it's it's going to encourage people to take one step towards action. Any other thoughts on getting arrested? What it meant for yourself, or what it means for the movement? Uh, the getting arrested, like the the actual going through all the processes, that was. Interesting, shocking, like, you know, being put in the paddy wagon and driven for an hour in there. Um, very uncomfortable. Then, you know, doing all the fingerprinting, really going through all that process. It it wakes you up like it's, it's a bit shocking. Um, but for the movement, it really creates trust and, and um, I think it strengthens the movement when people do take some risks together and it's it's a part of a whole like I think the the direct action is is necessary and then you know it's like the pointy end of the whole movement all right thanks Corinne you're very welcome thanks Andy on the paradigm shift it is election eve but we are talking about uh, voting every day with what you do and it's good to remember that as we are forced to do the dirty work of lining up and giving away our power to some politician who we don't agree with uh, tomorrow. And there's, it's worth uh, doing a kind of critique of why, why is our political system broken? You know, why don't the people that get voted in represent us? That's not exactly what we're doing on the show today, but what I am doing instead is uh, talking about other ways that you can make your political beliefs felt. And we have been talking about people going out there, um, putting your body physically in the way of activities you disagree with, and breaking unjust laws. Before Ryan Harvey, I was speaking with Corrine about her experience um, getting arrested to try to stop the Adani coal mine. And I'm going to keep going on that uh, journey. And we're going to next interview Dave McRae, who has done the same. Yeah, g'day. My name's David McRae, and uh, I'm 70 years old. 
I've got four grandchildren and I became interested in the climate crisis at least 15 years ago. Now, so 15 years ago you started worrying about the climate crisis. In the last few years you've taken that to um, a criminal level. You've been arrested a couple of times. What led you to thinking that getting arrested was something worthwhile to do? Well, I, I just got sick of signing petitions and um, organised a few rallies in Rockhampton and meeting with politicians, uh, joining groups like getup350.org, Stop Adani eventually. And I thought, they just don't give a damn. The politicians are not listening to us. So I knew someone from Yapoon who had been involved up here and she said, yeah, let's go up. So that got me started. That first trip, though, wasn't the one where you first got arrested. Was it a? Did it take a little while to work up to the idea that you getting arrested would be a, a useful and a, a safe thing to do? Yeah, initially I didn't intend to get arrested, and uh, the first action uh, we were just on the rail corridor in 2015, and they hadn't even started. They were just getting started. There was a picture of us in the paper in Rockhampton uh, being criticised. However, eventually I thought, okay, it's now or never. They asked me if I wanted to get arrested and I said no and then I slept on it and had a dream now or never and I said, okay, I'll be your bunny. (laughs) Wow, it was a dream, a prophetic dream. Yeah, I often have little dreams that give me intuitive glimpses of what I should do. That first one, it was um, at Hastings Deering, a truck manufacturer. You lock yourself to a gate. What was that experience like? Uh, We just held a big long banner and eventually, after stopping about 40 or 50 cars for two hours, the police arrived and um, I happened to be the first one she walked up to and asked me to drop the banner and I said, oh, I'd be letting the side down if I did that. So she arrested me and I ended up with a $500 fine. And the second one is was a bit more dramatic. You had to run onto a Darnie's mine site and climb up on a digger. Do you want to give us a bit of a blow-by-blow account of that one? Yeah, um, I, I got a little bit obsessed with the digger and thought, yeah, we, we've got to get on that digger, hey? You know, um, luckily I had really good support people who knew what they were doing and uh, eventually two of us walked there early in the morning and it just all happened. The digger was right in the corner where we needed it and we went over the edge and after I fell down a couple of times, we were on the digger. <laughs> you still got a great physical feat. Um, you had to walk a long way to get on there. Hey, not It's an action easier for the young people than the 70-year-olds, hey? Yeah, I had trouble with my knee and my eyesight, so I actually held on to someone who I'm really indebted to and then the last couple of k's he, he let go and said you'll be right because it was the moon was up you know yeah yeah what do you think is probably more common for young people to do this or at least to start doing it um what's it like coming to this kind of activism as an older person yeah yeah it is a challenge um physically but I felt 
it was something that I was committed to and uh, conscious of the, you know, the crisis with our climate. We just can't have, you know, the fossil fuels continuing to go into our atmosphere. So I felt that I had to get up and do something. Any other thoughts, Dave, about your own experiences or what you think about the civil disobedience in general? I think it's empowered me in my life um, to face my fears and I feel I'm much more bold than I used to be. I take risks more easily. Um, Yeah, I think it's helped me a lot and uh, I think I've improved some attitudes that maybe didn't help me in relating to other people because it's very much a community that we're involved with and yeah i enjoy it very much all right thanks dave thanks andy hi i'm frodo frodo we're talking about civil disobedience today um and you are somebody who has gotten arrested for the sake of the planet what led you to thinking that was a worthwhile use of your time time and place it was just because i was here and people were doing it it's got peer pressured into it maybe not peer pressured no one else put their hand up so i did with my friend well so then you went down to the road to Danny's abbot point you sat down and stuck your arm in a concrete barrel do you want to talk us through what the actual experience was like It was pretty chill. I feel like everyone else did most of the work. Me and my friend just walked on and then put our hands in and sat there. And then because we were together, we just got to chat and sing and it was pretty chill. It was was quite a dramatic day in other ways. There were French journalists arrested. It became an international media event, although not necessarily your arrest what what was it like sort of seeing that go around the world and things this action that you'd done well I thought that was pretty good like it was a good way to get attention and but not have to be the actual face face of it like (laughs) it was good that they were there and got arrested as well because then they became really big and still spread the word a bit it was quite good yeah since then, you've been back a number of times to Camp Binby. Maybe at first you hadn't thought much about it, I and mean, just circumstance. But you've um, certainly come back a bit. Has it come to be something that means more to you personally? Yeah, heaps more. I only came back at first because I had to go to court, and then I think on that trip I then kind of got more into the politics of it all and like wanted to be here and wanted to help other people take action and teach and learn and everything to do with like activism and direct action and you know all these different tactics and being around these people and having these discussions here was amazing like I knew I cared about like the environment and I've known that I've cared about lots of things but I didn't really know those things very deeply but being surrounded by it meant that I had more understanding of my own passions, really. And the the theory of it, like the strategy of it, is that something you think is important for, you know, humans trying to survive on this planet, like a kind of theory of nonviolent direct action? I think 
well, Bimbi at least, like the way we lived here is a better way of living in terms of the survival of the whole world if everyone was like living like this. And so, and in turn, do, taking action and speaking up and um, bucking the norm. On the paradigm shift on 4ZZZ, I was talking to Dave McRae and then Frodo about their own experiences rising up uh, for our climate and uh, locking themselves to machinery to try to stop Adani's mine being built. They both did fantastic actions and also were both uh, people who were great parts of the community of direct action that formed around that Adani campaign at Camp Binby. We are doing a bit of a, a people-powered special. It is election weekend, of course, and I'm here on the Paradigm Shift to remind you that political action does not start and end with jotting down a few numbers on a page. Tomorrow, there's all kinds of ways we can impact the world and in the process, learn a whole lot about ourselves and maybe um, discover a bit of uh, new possibilities in the connections that we make. I've got one more interview about nonviolent direct action, and it is with Donna Smith, um, who's been a part of many, many environmental direct actions in the last few years since she took that first step. Let's have a listen to Donna. Donna, you've been involved in the Adani campaign quite a lot over the last half a decade or so. Um, and, in fact, have been arrested in the campaign a couple of times. What led you to the point where you thought getting arrested was a good idea? Basically, like for me, like arrest is a way of actually amplifying the issue so people are willing to stand up and be arrested with the understanding that the implications, um, particularly for middle-aged white women, is negligible when you get arrested so I just thought it was time for me to stand up and also um, I think it's quite inspirational to other people in the movement to actually stand up and take and understand that there's essentially not that much risk there and through taking those kinds of actions if we get the media attention then our issue actually starts to become more normalized and more Australians start to understand what's happening. So you got arrested a couple of times in the Adani HQ in Townsville. Do you want to talk us through what the experience was like? Yeah, for, for me, they were both incredibly positive experiences and actually quite joyful experiences. So the first one, um, Adani had locked down their building because they'd had a previous occupation there. So they had security now in place. And, you know, we had some really great planning of of ways we could still get up onto their floor. We had people basically in the stairwell we had people trying to get in into the lift. We had, you know, examples of security guard in the lift and someone's gone and, you know, pressed a button and sent them up to another floor and jumped out and then jumped into another lift. And it was kind of this real organised disorganisation. And by the time we got up to the floor, there was a couple of us, we held that space, um, you know, the security were on the phone, like, like oh oh my god there's protesters here and then we opened the door to the fire escape and in started streaming this protester and security's on the phone like there's three of us there's four there's four oh my god there's lots of them there's just lots of them and everyone peacefully occupied the foyer there's a lot of really good positive storytelling 
and eventually the police came in and there was negotiations and there was five of us I think in in that moment that decided to stay and be arrested. The second one, um, again back to Adani HQ, so using polypipe to try to stop workers coming in. Again, a really positive experience. Got arrested along with a young, a young lady and also an older gentleman. Lots of singing and chanting, lots of support up in there. We got arrested, um, taken to the watch house and then eventually processed and released to, and in both occasions, you know, there's always someone there waiting for you, pick you up, feed you and take you home and, and celebrate along with other people. Yeah, it is interesting mentioning that fun and joyous. It really is. I mean, that sounds like a great action, just sneaking into the office and trying to get past security. Like it, our lives are often pretty mundane and you have these kind of heightened experiences when you're doing this that otherwise you don't really get. And I think people are a bit uh, afraid to say that because it's sort of, it's not it's not fun for everybody getting arrested. But it, NVDA can be really fun, can't it? Yeah, I, I think, like, I've, I've been arrested the, the two times, but I've been, been involved in a lot of actions that have arrestable components. Like for me, it's an underlying theme of just joy. Like people are actually out there taking action. You know, you're with a bunch of people that think the same as you and you really can have a lot of fun. And, and the creativity that goes in to some of the actions, um, you know, very clever, very funny, like really just trying to lighten it because I think a lot of theory of change can be built around humour because people understand humour. Um, so bringing that humour into these like potentially conflicting areas where workers are and things like that really can help de-escalate and I'd have to say like some of the most joyous moments in my life have literally been on in the front line um, attending actions and being around like these really rad people. Your path into activism is an interesting one because you got involved fairly late in life but then you dived right in. What, how did that work? Yeah, I've always found this a really tricky question. So for me, like I was in IT for 25 years, so really in the white-collar industry, coal seam gas, gas kind of got presented to me and that just seemed really wrong. Um, so I remember being at a protest, like waving the banners outside of a hotel and uh, Dwayne Presky, the, the frack man, was you know arrested and dragged out of kind of the hotel because he'd disrupted disrupted their conference and it's at that point I kind of realized that's actually what I want to do um, that's the disruptive element that's what's working um, being out the front ra like waving the sign like I, I didn't understand the point of that so from there I jumped into um, some non-violent direct action like rock the gate I think the first one they had out at Tara did my first action there stood in front of a, a gate stopped some trucks so that's the time um, when I linked up with um, a guy called Ben Pennings and we started to co-create Gully Blockade around a, a deliberate direct action campaign. Yeah, so this is the interesting thing for Gully Blockade which um, I guess some uh, elements of the environmental movement or civil disobedience, it's like you have this broad idea and then civil disobedience is like one part of it or it's a, a later addition when all else fails whereas Gully Blockade was from the start built around we are going to get people arrested, do disruptive actions. Yeah, it really was an intentional direct action campaign. We, The main reason we kind of went that way is we understood that that was actually a gap 
in in the movement so there was a lot of NGOs working in the space around you know the petitions and the um, you know inside you know working and building um, relationships inside you know the industry and you know getting people to rallies and stuff like that and we saw that direct action was a real gap and it was a real need to have it so we deliberately um, brought that into the Stop Adani movement we essentially you know strategically picked um, the company that was like Downer was going to build and maintain and operate the mine it was worth 2.6 billion dollars but I think the critical point they were only a letter of reward they actually hadn't signed a contract so we believed they were movable and decided that that's our target we're just going to keep hammering them until they move and this is how you went from uh, IT code writer to some kind of criminal mastermind getting people arrested all the time blockading trucks and all kinds of things yeah that that's an interesting journey isn't it when you look at it that way um yeah and that and that was deliberate like you know supporting people to get arrested it was incredibly effective you know part of that campaign was really about sustained disruption um, targeting particularly their bottom line. So, you know, we're very fortunate that company had asphalt facilities which are easily shut down by everyday ordinary people literally standing in a driveway. So facilities were shutting down, trucks were stopped, major roadworks weren't happening. So it materially really did impact this company to the point where they pulled out and it has been acknowledged that they pulled out due to direct action of activists. Your... IT skills um, have certainly come in handy, your organisational skills in the direct action movement. They would seem, some people would see them as a, a weird fit, but it does require a lot of organisation, doesn't it? And um, quite comparable skills in some ways. What do you think about that? Yeah, 100%. And like it's acknowledging that obviously there's lots of different skills that make the movement powerful and even in direct action creativity. But this, the analytical skills around organising, you know, um, understanding systems and processes, you know, when you do a call out on a red alert for the front line and you know there's going to be hundreds of people responding, you know, setting up an email address is not going to be practical and work. So, you know, you've got the skills around spreadsheeting and organising and automating things to actually take away the workload from other people so they can actually get on with doing the direct action and helping facilitate those actions. So analytical skills and organised skills are like essential. And looking forward, I mean, the Adani campaign has been a, a long ride and, you know, there's been various good things come out of it, but ultimately we've ended up with the mine built. Do you think that going forward for yourself and for the climate movement that civil disobedience, nonviolent direct action is going to continue to be an important thing? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, it really has to be, in my opinion, strategic. Um, and it, that doesn't mean like you're necessarily going for you know, a particular target with a particular ask and you win it. Like there, there's also elements of, you know, like how do you build the movement and the skills and how do you teach people that they don't need to comply and they don't need to agree. And, and people actually starting to understand the power is with the people. We, by our complicity and our silence, we give consent to these, you know, oppressive systems. And I think direct action and civil disobedience and resistance have a place in all facets of life, um, you know, from local to global. And, you know, I, I genuinely hope that this is something that builds in the future. And, and there's very little of it in Australia. 
and we're quite apathetic and I don't quite understand why, but um, I hope it grows because it's desperately needed. All right. Thanks, Donna. Thanks, Andy. That was uh, Donna Smith there talking about some of the adventures that you can have doing non-violent civil disobedience, some of the uh, friendships that you can make and some of the political impact that you can have and uh, all the different interviewees we've had on the show today have been testament to that, to the difference it can make in your own personal life and development um, as well as the value of civil disobedience as a political tool and uh, a lot of these interviews recorded about the Adani campaign, which has been one of the big environmental campaigns in Australia over recent years. It is sort of dying down now. Of course, Adani has built that mine, sadly, although uh, it will never become the mine that it was originally planned to be, thanks largely to the efforts of committed people like those I've spoken to on the show. But there will be plenty more, and we need it too, because if there's one thing... I've learnt from uh, parliamentary politics over the years and indeed over the weeks of election campaigning is that they are not up for the task when it comes to stopping the climate crisis or taking adequate uh, environmental action for the times we are living in. Um, They are hamstrung hopelessly by the dictates of big political donors, by Uh, their own party infighting and ideology and by their fear of losing votes in key marginal seats. And so if we are going to get the kind of climate action that we require, it will be up to people like you and me taking uh, whatever political action we can using the abilities we have and the opportunities that we see. And the stories of those people we've had on the show today are testament to the power that ordinary people can have. Um, when they decide to take action. So I want to thank both those people I spoke to and everybody out there who's been fighting for a better world, um, doing the hard work behind the scenes of political action and the stuff that doesn't get recognised when the media uh, goes into overdrive around election time um, and starts talking about uh, politics as this spectator sport and but it doesn't have to be i hope to see you out there fighting for a better world after we have to get the dirty business of the election over and done with this weekend i'll certainly be back with another show next week on the paradigm shift and i look forward to catching you then see you next week